Hello and welcome to the Head First Podcast. My name is Joe O'Brien, I'm your host and creator of the Head First Podcast and the Head First Instagram page, which you can find using the handle Head First Zero. This podcast is here to bring you all things psychology and mental health, so check out the other episodes if you have an interest in psychology and in mental health. This podcast is sponsored by Spectrum Mental Health, who are a mental health company who do counseling and psychotherapy, as well as corporate psychology services. So I work within their clinical team. If you have any questions regarding the services that I provide or the services that Spectrum provide, you can email me at joeobrien at mentalhealth.ie or contact me through my Instagram page. In this podcast, I'm joined by Nicole Banner, a therapist who I work with in Spectrum, and we're going to speak all about relationships. So, Nicole, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate your time. Um, so, I work with you in Spectrum, and part of what you cover, at least some of what you cover, is in relation to relationships. I know that this podcast is extremely uh, well anticipated, let's say. I got okay. about 200 questions um, that were submitted by other people, so I know that there's a lot of interest in this area. If you wouldn't mind giving the people who are tuning in a little bit of kind of background about what you do, where you've come from, um, that'd be, I guess, really helpful to start. Sure. Yeah. So definitely thank you for having me first. Um, yeah, my name's Nicole Banner and I am an accredited psychotherapist here in Dublin. Um, I'm obviously not originally from here. Um, I come by way of United States, most recently New York City. And yeah, I work for Spectrum Mental Health. I'm a psychotherapist with the company and I uh, work mostly with adults. However, I do see teens, 13 above, and uh, just a ton of couples and relationships. Okay, so you're used to uh, delving into all matters relationships, right? I'd say so, yeah. Um, so you work with a lot of couples. You've probably seen a lot of different relationship issues over the years. Um, but just before we kind of get into relationship difficulties, and relationship difficulties were a large part of the questions people submitted. They were, what's wrong in the relationships? It might be helpful to start on kind of a, a positive note and, and maybe what factors predict a positive relationship, like what's a good foundation to start with? Yeah, I love that, starting with the positive first. Um, so I really don't ascribe to this idea that there's one formula to a healthy or functioning relationship. I think, you know, it's a recipe and it can be made of many ingredients. Um, they often include friendship and love and admiration and trust and respect. And all of that's important. Um, you know, any different amounts and how that works into the relationship depends on each couple. Um, the one thing, though, that I do think is absolutely necessary for a couple to last and to be functioning throughout is transparency, which I think we're going to talk a bit about throughout this. Amazing. Okay, so that can be like the underlying theme. Yeah. Um, so one of the questions that was submitted as well, like before we kind of get into the thick of things was, if relationship counseling is helpful at any stage or if it's just a last resort. And this was quite interesting to me because I actually know somebody in my family who did a, a marriage counseling course before they got married. Mm. And they always said that that was really, really helpful for them going forward. So you as a therapist, do you think it's for like the question I got was, was it always a, is it only a last resort or only kind of when things are struggling or is it or can it be more helpful than that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is a great question, and absolutely not. I mean, just like individual counseling, it can either be crisis management or preventative care, and you know, all that good stuff in the middle as well. Um, as humans, we tend to think that we need to fix things on our own and to manage. And I am here to say that we don't have to just manage in our lives. We can actually feel really good about whether it's our physical health or our mental health or our relationship health. So this idea of like white knuckling through life, trying to just get on with it and manage is so unfair to ourselves and it's unfair to where we have the potential to go. So frequently, I would say the majority of my couples do come in and they have hit some sort of crisis point, um, but I don't believe it needed to get there. And certainly if we're going to speak about transparency and what that looks like, that takes work to build and time. So the earlier you start doing that, I mean, the better. And just in relation to couples counselling, are there things that a, a an individual can do by themselves? Let's say an individual who's struggling in their relationships, can they also go to a therapist but have relationship difficulties? Like how much can you do with a single person by themselves or how important is it for, for a couple to go in together? So the couples that I see, I would suggest and encourage both parties to be in separate individual counseling at the same time. One, because from the couple's therapist point of view, I can't get into like the nuances that make a person a person and potentially how that's negatively impacted their life and what's going on for them that may need to shift. There's just not the space for that in couples counseling. And it like just equally when I'm working with the, with the individual, if I'm, if the majority of our work is around their relationship, it's very difficult. I'm only seeing one side of things. So I would always encourage them to seek couples counseling. And, you know, again, usually the response is, Oh, it's not that bad. It doesn't need to be that bad. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So it can be as much kind of preventative and promotion of a relationship rather than just crisis management, like you said. Of course. And you know, bottom line, the more awareness I bring into myself, which is ideally what therapy becomes about after that crisis is sort of managed, if I have the space to start becoming more aware around why I perceive the world in the way in which I do, that allows me the opportunity to understand that maybe my partner views the world in a totally different way. And it just brings about a compassion and empathy and understanding, both for myself and then my partner. Cool. That sounds really great. Thank you. Um, so diving into now what people have submitted, like I said, I got 200 questions. So what I tried to do was I tried to take the kind of most common ones that have, that have popped up and related them to and put them into a kind of a structured format. I won't be able to get to everybody's questions, unfortunately, but um, if we could start with the most common ones, um, I might throw this over to you. What are kind of the most common difficulties that you see come in? Yep. So I see a broad range of what we call presenting problems in the therapy world. And those range from general disconnect, lack of communication, concern for your partners or your own medical or mental health or substance use, then pressure points like infidelity, trust, finances, and then major life events or transitions like the death of a parent or loved one, um, issues with fertility, uh, moving for a job, etc. I would argue though that usually in my work, once we kind of get through the context of why they came in, it boils down to transparency, which is why that's like going to be the buzzword of today. Okay. Okay. Um, so these relationship difficulties can be expressed maybe in different contexts or different formats, but underlying that is, is the transparency stuff. Yeah, because we know that other couples who we would deem as functioning or positive in nature, they've also undergone some of these same life issues that are bound to come up and they make it through. 
and it, their relationship remains positive and strong. So it's not the context, it's what's going on underneath. And usually that means an inability to express what I'm feeling, what I'm taking from this, and then making assumptions about my partner as well. Okay, cool, that's very interesting. I think you mentioned it there a minute ago about jealousy um, and kind of that obviously ties into trust and, and having suspicions. That was a lot of the questions that I got is, you know, my partner goes out at night without me and, and I get concerned or they like other people's photos on Instagram or, you know, all these different kind of things that seem to relate to be related to kind of jealousy or, or trust or being suspicious. Um, so I guess my question is, is that kind of um, concern healthy? Is that is that something that's normal? And, and what I guess, what are your thoughts on, on those kind of things? Sure. So. I guess to broaden the lens a little bit, I think that we are all a product of the experiences that we've had. And unless we've all had years and years of therapy where we've untangled all the reasons why we see the world in way, the way in which we do, why we feel things the way we do, why we experience things the way we do, then we often lack the insight into you know why we feel how we feel, right? Instead, what happens is we have a pang of a feeling and we're immediately there. We're in the feeling rather than allowing ourselves the objectivity to sort of broaden that and be like, well, what is this feeling for me? And do I need to immediately take it on? I always use the perfect example of, you know, if I'm driving my car and all of a sudden I'm hitting dead traffic and traffic is all I can see for the rest of time. I have a window of time where I can choose to take on that anger. Obviously, anybody hitting traffic is annoyed. It sucks. But there is a window of time where it's like, am I going to take this on? And then I'm going to start beating my steering wheel. I'm cursing out the world. And most likely, that anger is going to spill over into other experiences throughout my day. Or I can accept that this is where I'm at right now. There's nothing I can do about it. I can text my boss that I'm running late. I can put a podcast on and I can sit in my car and I have a very different experience. Jealousy works the same way, right? So it's not about judging the feeling, that initial pang. Rather, it's actively choosing to explore it more pragmatically. It's learning to keep that window open long enough to decide if I want to take on that feeling. If we judge ourselves, right, if it's, oh, I'm just this jealous person, or maybe we've been sort of like pointed out as being that from our past partners, that can bring about a whole bunch of guilt and shame and blame, which then deems us, we're bad people now. So then we're not able to explore because I have to avoid that thought of myself, where really, if I'm able to just take the feeling, which is, I feel jealous in this moment, and then explore it. I can begin to look at it like a detective, right? So do I have evidence for this? If I do, what do I want to do with that evidence? Or if I don't have evidence, and this is related to past experiences, can I actively choose to let this feeling go? Not saying it's easy, but it is the work that can be done. Yeah, it definitely doesn't sound easy. Um, just on that, you mentioned previous relationships. Mm -hmm. What kind of um, previous experiences might lead someone to feel that that jealousy or, or that um, insecurity for example if their partner goes out without them or if they're for example not responding to their messages or their phone calls what are, are are there any I guess past experiences that would predict that that kind of behavior is it like being in relationships that that weren't trustworthy before maybe or, or something along those lines yeah absolutely and even before that I mean what were our attachments like when we were children and I think we're going to talk a little bit about attachments later so I won't get too into it but you know if I 
was maybe not consciously aware, but if I felt neglected or left by my parents and didn't receive the nurturing and the support that I needed as a child, that will lead me into feeling very anxious around other people in my lives that feel important to me, whether it's friends or romantic partners. So, you know, it's, again, it's not this judgment of why is this the way I am? Rather, I am. What can I do about it? Can I begin to question it? Can I challenge it? Because even though these attachment styles may stem from our childhood, our earliest memories, we do have more control than we believe over our behavior. Cool. That's really, really interesting. You mentioned what can we do about it when you, when you realize maybe that you're not to blame, for example. What can you do going forward? What does someone do when they have those feelings of, of jealousy and, and um, I guess, trust issues maybe when, when their partner is doing something maybe outside of their control or, or when they have those what if thoughts, what if they're doing this or what if they're doing that? Yeah, I think, I mean, again, we're going to get into transparency, but this is, it's this idea of if I am in a healthy functioning relationship, there should probably not be anything I don't think I can discuss with my partner in a calm and collected way. So even if I'm having irrational worries or fears around my partner and they've given me no evidence, if I've had past experiences that have led me to having this response to you know, my partner going out late at night or maybe not getting the amount of texts I feel I need, then that just exists. I can't begin to question it or challenge it until I can give it a space to exist. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes sense to me anyway. <laughs> um, so then tying that in, um, we mentioned uh, previous or past relationships. If you tie that into, for example, cheating, um, which is another one of the common questions that I got, um firstly let's start with i guess being in a relationship where cheating has happened is it possible to recover from somebody cheating on you and and still have a functioning relationship going forward because i'm sure obviously that brings a lot of those trust issues that we just spoke about so is is there things that people can do going forward to to maybe save that relationship or what's your what's your verdict on that i'm sure that's maybe some of the stuff that you you get in in your sessions yes yeah, certainly infidelity would be um, a lot of the reasons why people come in. Um, I am of the belief that there's not one thing that can be the end of a relationship. Um, in, in fact, you know, sometimes infidelity, even though it's, you know, not nice and it's really unpleasant for both parties, uh, if you're trying to move forward, it can be that nuclear bomb. It can be that pressure point that brings about a real sense of change that may have been necessary for a long time. Um, I would argue, though, that what it requires is both parties to be completely prepared to unpack and process that cheating and the relationship as a whole. So, again, bringing in that transparency. And it, there has to be a joint understanding that it can't be about penance or, like, time served. Okay. It needs to be about, like, what could the positive change look like if we were to move in this direction? So, like, a new relationship, essentially. Is that what it is? Is that what look moving forward from that looks like? Like starting again to some extent? Yeah. Um, uh, a metaphor I always use is this idea of, you know, typically when clients come to me and they're sort of in this gridlock state, it's I give them the picture of, you know, one's on this island, one's on that island. And for a long time, however long before they've come to me, the goal has been for the other one to go to the other island, right? Where the work with me is to go to a new island together. Okay, that is actually really helpful. So 
you're saying that when people come into you, they want their partner, for example, to come over to them and, and agree with their perspective and their, obviously the, their other half wants them to go and see it from their perspective. Mm-hmm. Whereas I guess the idea of where you want to move to is, is finding a, a new island, like you said, a new perspective together. Yeah. I mean, part of transparency is this idea of, I can truly accept that the way in which I perceive the world is different than the way in which my partner perceives the world. And if I can accept that, then it, it's not about I'm right, they're wrong, I'm, they're wrong, it's that we're different. And that actually can be a beautiful thing. You know, it's, it's usually a wonderful thing that we aren't robots and we think differently. Does that require some conversation and some positive conflict that can feel really tricky? Of course. But this idea that I don't have to, they don't have to get on my page and I don't have to get on theirs, but we can venture and create this new space for ourselves together where they both can exist. I, I feel like the right and wrong thing must come up a lot. A lot. Because uh, um, I remember speaking to previous therapists and they mentioned that a lot of people come into couples counselling and they're sometimes there to to get like a, a judgment, like who is right and wrong. How do, how do you separate, for example, if you were to give advice to, to couples now who are saying, you know, I'm right and I'm standing my ground, what kind of advice might you give to, to that person who's, you know, I'm right in this relationship, so I'm going to stay this way. And they might have that kind of standoff conflict. I mean, if I would try to challenge that, if that's not going anywhere, then our work is done. Because if there's not a willingness to shift and change and understand that we, we all think we're right. I mean, it's our egos. Like we, we don't usually act in ways that we think are wrong. Right. So if I always think I'm right, and I, then I, that leads me to believe that my partner is always wrong rather than we're both right. We're both wrong. We both contribute positively to this relationship and we both contribute negatively to this relationship. It's not about me being a referee. That's impossible. That can't happen. So instead it's about allowing themselves to become detectives of themselves and then each other. And through that, they're able to establish a new ground. So being quite flexible in, in, in their approach is, is definitely a helpful one for those who are kind of at home wondering where to start, being flexible in, in their stance on being right or wrong. Yeah, just an openness to understanding that it's really not about your partner not being wrong doesn't make you wrong then. Does that make sense? It's, yeah. it's this idea of both exist because I'm not seeing the world the way my partner does. So they're interacting it in a way that makes sense to them, that feels right to them. And I am as well. So, so, so both their experiences are that they both think that they're, they're right, but we need to appreciate that you can, there is no kind of black and white. There is no, there is no right or wrong. It's, 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 it's just what I feel and what you feel. And once it becomes more about that, then we can do work because removing that right or wrong this this tallying up. It makes me, lose complete insight or empathy of my partner being an individual and I'm desperate for them to come to my side and I'm right and I get more and more deeply rooted in my rightness and then all of a sudden I'm closing myself in and I'm and I'm not able to take a step back and it's that whole like you know walk in somebody else's shoes but it's that same idea of like there's room for that there's room for somebody else taking this in in a different way that's really interesting um just on cheating as well, I was going to ask you this later on, but I think I might just ask it now because I feel like it's relevant. We were talking about recovering from, example, infidelity, but 
Um, in terms of um, breaking up then, when, when is a relationship maybe um, to the point where it's, it's best if you move on? Or, or is there a way, I know there's probably not, if there's anything we know about psychology, there's not one single answer. But how do you know then when, when breaking up might be the right option? Uh, like at what point do you, should you call it a day for somebody who's struggling in their relationship and hasn't had that kind of progress? Mm-hmm. I think the good news here is that struggle doesn't mean over. It just means you're in a place where probably change needs to happen. So as long as both parties can get to a point or are working to get to a point, I mean, ambivalence is part of all of this. So there's resistance, there's ambivalence. That's fine. That's, I can work with all of that. But once somebody has a complete unwillingness to change, a complete unwillingness to relinquish themselves of this right and wrong, or a complete unwillingness to just forgive and let go of the resentments, that's probably time where at least some sort of major change, like a break or separation needs to happen. And what would you say to those who maybe have had an incident in the past that, for example, might've been infidelity or might've been some sort of mistrust, um, and they're kind of, I know from, from personal experience that friends of mine and, and people I know would have maybe parked the issue and just moved on without addressing it, that there's this kind of, this happened in the past, but we're going to ignore it. Mm-hmm. I presume that, like, addressing your feelings, that ignoring it isn't really a a good option, right? Yeah, I mean, we, just like our own inner demons, right? If we don't want to look at them, we kind of keep them in these filing cabinets in our brain. That's how I envision it anyway. And so, you know, the brain is very efficient. And so if it's like, hey, you haven't dealt with this thing, it brings it to you roughly every seven seconds, whether you're conscious of it or not. And if I'm like, oh, nope, 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 don't want to deal with that. That's ugly. Don't want that then I'm just, I'm actively, I'm standing in this room full of shelves. I'm taking this filing thing down, I'm looking at it. I'm deciding no, and I'm putting it back up. Seven seconds later, I'm taking it back down. That is a fruitless task, and it's very exhausting, and it's wearing, and it's all just there. I feel it all. So it's the same idea of, like, you know, if I don't want to deal with something in my relationship because it's too scary or, you know, it might mean the beginning of the end or whatever it means, whatever that fear is, probably the exact thing that needs to be discussed okay so those uncomfortable feelings aren't or events or whatever it is aren't worth parking they're not worth ignoring and that's maybe something that's going to potentially rear its head in the future yeah it's like a band-aid pull it off yeah exactly i mean get to the if you it you may function for many years after that but at some point probably that will bubble back up and that brings me on to, I guess, the next question, which is, how do you deal with those uncomfortable conversations that need to be had without, I guess, exploding or overreacting or, or turning it into a, a right and wrong argument? Um, one of the things that, that somebody mentioned was that whenever they get in kind of a, in a difficult conversation or when they have to have a conversation around something that um, they're struggling with in their relationship, that they they tend to be quite irrational in the moment and they tend to, for example, just don't speak to somebody or threaten to break up with them or they find it very difficult to have this rational conversation. So when these uncomfortable conversations need to be had, let's say someone's listening to this and they feel, oh, I identify with the right and wrong and me and my partner are constantly um, fighting over who's right and who's wrong. How does someone start having those difficult conversations? In a more productive way? Yes. So... This is where that transparency piece, I guess I'll flush out a little bit more. Cool. Um, so the definition of transparency with 
relation to relationships is it's a way of being truly honest about you, not the couple, just you. It means sharing what's coming up for you that prevents a closeness or maybe triggers something in you. Um, if we don't feel we can discuss our feelings or our thoughts, instead of fumbling through it to get there, we tend to avoid. If we avoid, it leads to making assumptions about our partner's thoughts and feelings, and then we react based off those assumptions. We are living in a complete fantasy world that does not exist, and that can be extremely dangerous because I am now acting based off of what I assume my partner is thinking, where they may not be thinking that at all. And it creates these elephants that are in the room, and it can create a major disconnect. Um, I think also with the transparency bit, um, if we don't build this transparency, which I like to call fluency within the relationship, um, if we don't learn to fumble over our words and stop worrying about sounding eloquent and getting it all right, it's just about relaying the message of how you're feeling. A really good example I like to use is if my partner seems to be really concerned about me getting home on time, right? And I'm sitting here in this feeling of like, they're so jealous of me. Like five, 10 minutes late is not this big deal. Like they need to relax. And then none of that's going spoken, but I know they're going to be pissed off if I'm five, 10 minutes late. I'm pissed off because they're, they're annoyed that I'm five minutes late. And it builds this resentment, right? Rather than if I start talking to my partner and they're able to be open and transparent with me, we might get to a point of where I'm starting to understand they're fearing that I'm in a car crash somewhere. That's totally different. I can get on board with that. It means nothing to me to send a text that I'm going to be five, 10 minutes late. If I recognize that my partner is so fearful, so anxious about me, and suddenly the whole conversation has shifted. It's not this, err, it's, oh my God, if I can be there for you, I will. That's actually a really, really cool example. I, I would love to hear more of what comes up in, in response to that, like in terms of what real life issues pop up in relation to transparency. What are the kind of maybe the common ones? What, what sprung to mind when you were mentioning that was there's, you know, you see these memes on the Internet and one of them might be like um, when your partner or your girlfriend or boyfriend say, oh, I'm OK. And, you know, they're not OK. You know, that kind of they're really short in their response and, and that is, is maybe a signal that you know they're not okay, but then there's that underlying issue, right? There's that underlying thing that there's something not being said. Mm -hmm. um, would that be, a, you mentioned again, sharing things that, that trigger us. Mm -hmm. How difficult is that for, for people to express to their partner? Um, that, I mean, that is the crux of it. It's where does the responsibility lie, right? Is it my responsibility to tell you exactly how I'm feeling or can I act passive aggressive and say, nope, I'm fine when I'm clearly not. And it's the responsibility of my partner to say, it doesn't feel like you're fine. Can you tell me what's going on? It's both. So okay. <laughs> if I can learn to be open and honest about what I'm experiencing, irrational or not, I have a better chance of getting my needs met, right? Frequently in my couples, we have to break things down, which sounds really unromantic, but unfortunately our brains work really well with data. I don't have to question that two plus two equals four. I just know it and then I can relax. There's no anxiety around that, right? Versus I'm not getting enough intimacy. Okay, what does that mean? So a lot of the work that I do is breaking down these huge, broad, sweeping statements that they've probably rehearsed for like ever. 
And uh-huh. it's, it's beginning to come up with a formula of what that means. Okay, does that mean four kisses a day? Oh my God, I don't want to number how many times I'm going to kiss a day. Why? Because if they're willing to meet that need, you've ex- expressed your need, they've met it. Problem solved. Okay. Not always so simplistic, right? But yeah. if we can begin to bring in some data, some formulaic way of discussing things, it just alleviates all this like, like muddiness and a lack of clarity. So if I need more intimacy, what does that look like? If I'm unhappy with my job, why? So I do this in individual and couples counseling. It's all the same, but it's this idea of take the big, broad, sweeping thoughts that we give ourselves and begin to look at them more pragmatically, begin to assess what that would actually look like. And then recognizing that the other side of that is my partner may not want to do those things, but if they're willing to do them because it meets my need, that's still a great partner. It's like that in the breakup with Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn, and she's like, I want you to want to do the dishes. It's like, no. From a therapeutic (laughs) standpoint, you don't have to want to do the dishes, but it's the fact that my partner knows that if they do the dishes, it's taking something off me, and I've asked them to do it, and they're doing it. My need is met. They don't have to want to do it. I can't make them want to do it. So I guess transparency really ties down to being able to effectively communicate your needs. A thousand percent. I mean, communication and transparency are probably like buddied up next to each other. Um, but it, I feel like some people, when you say communication, it's this idea of like, well, I'm not a big talker. I don't talk about my feelings. So it's just like, that's just me. Okay. Versus transparency being a necessity within a relationship, you can create your own communication, right? A big thing that I give um, clients in couples to do is when you're starting to discuss things and it's it's a topic that usually leads to either some sort of nuclear bomb argument or just like, you know, uh, passive aggressive ignoring of each other. One activity that I ask clients to do as homework is to start labeling where they're at a one through 10, 10 being like, this is a nuclear bomb for me. One being like, this is cool. We can talk about this all day. Half the time I may be at a two and my partner's at a 10. So I'm like, why are you freaking out? Like this is a two. If I say that and they're like, I'm at a 10, immediately I have empathy. Because it's like, oh my gosh, you're working from a 10 and I'm at a 2. That must be really hard for you. How can we discuss the same thing? Because maybe we have to if it's about finances or children or whatever. How can we discuss the same thing where you're at a 9, at an 8, at a 7? It's bringing in math too. So, <laughs> so, so that's kind of um, similar to what you said earlier about the, the island thing where you might think on, on your island, this issue is like a two, but, but their experience is of a 10. So you're treating it as if it's a minor thing, but for, for the other person, it's, a, it's this huge deal. And I think it was really important what you mentioned earlier about responsibility, because I can see lots of people listening to this podcast or, or maybe have had issues with their relationships before and thought that they should know. My partner should know because whenever I do X, Y, and Z, why don't they know rather than taking on some of that responsibility and that I have some part to play in this as well as the, the other person. Do you see that a lot? Uh, yes. Passive aggressiveness does not work. It does not work because no matter what it's leaving people guessing. And oftentimes one, one party of the partnership may be able to ignore that passive aggression. Like, okay, I see that you're doing this. I'm not going to engage. So I'm going to bounce. And then you're left even more frustrated and upset because your needs still aren't being met, where perhaps if you had just had the conversation, you'd get somewhere. And do you think these difficult conversations can be 
I, I know you said a lot of the people that come to you are, are kind of more towards maybe a, a crisis point or, or something significant has happened. But do you think people can have these conversations without, for example, going to a professional? Yes. I mean, that's ultimately the goal. I think it can be really tough because, like I said earlier, you know, most of these arguments have been rehearsed for, I mean, it's a, it's a well-scripted play at this point and okay. people know exactly how to push their partner's buttons. So as soon as whatever trigger word is there happens and they get to that state, no work is being done. Once they're able to throw a wrench in there, that is the work ideally that's happening in couples counseling where you're learning where to throw a wrench in like, ah, this isn't working. We're both at a 10 now. So you can either do that and then save it for therapy and bring it up with myself, or you can learn together that you are at a 10. How do we become a nine? How do we become an eight? How do we become a seven, et cetera? So that you're constantly just acknowledging what's going on in the room. When we avoid things, when we allow those elephants to exist, they just grow and grow and grow. And if elephants are already really big, so they're just <laughs> pushing us into separate rooms altogether. That's so, so interesting. Um, just you mentioned uh, Jennifer Aniston, and that's so funny because I have a question here about Ross and Rachel. But one of the, uh, one of the ways that, that some people were suggesting they improve their own relationship was going on a break. Mm -hmm. So I guess... When might a break be suitable and can you do that in a healthy way and not turn out like Ross and Rachel? Sure, yeah. Um, I think breaks can be really good if there is a real gridlock and the couple is really stuck. Um, if, there's, if it's stuck like that, there's just no room for understanding your partner and ultimately that's what we need to have to be able to function effectively together. Um, so space can be a way to throw that wrench into the mix, like I was just saying. Um, Divorce also is often brought up or breaking up depending on where you are in your relationship. And so I always ask my uh, couples when they first come in if divorce or separation has been brought up. And oftentimes it has from either one or both members of the partnership, but it's often just loftily thrown out. And I don't even necessarily mean in that threatening way of like, I'm going to leave you, but sometimes in a way of like, ah, we can't do this anymore. We should just separate, right? This exasperation. And often that's because we see divorce or separation as freedom, as relief. We don't see that our partner could be part of that. So I always tell clients if they're sort of at that space and they're getting to that point of arguments where divorce or separation is being brought up, start talking about it. What does that actually mean? Same idea, taking a broad sweeping idea like divorce and breaking it down. What would that mean? Who would move out? Who's going to take care of the kids? How are the finances going to work? Is it for three months? Is it for one month? Are we seeing people while we're doing that romantically? How much are we going to talk? Are we going to see each other? Once we start flushing this stuff out, it removes the fantasy of like divorce equals relief immediately and it starts bringing in reality. And there may be positives in that, right? Maybe we do need that space. But either way, you're beginning to have a conscious and open conversation about it. It's kind of getting on the same page as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Like it, your expectations and, and what you think it's going to look like versus what they think it's going to look like. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really, really interesting. So one of the things I wanted to bring up as part of taking a break is, is boundaries. And I know part of boundary setting might be having that conversation. But um, what does it mean in terms of the relationship con context? Like what are what kind of boundaries, I guess, explain maybe what boundaries are in a relationship first and then what healthy boundaries are important in, in any, I guess, positive relationship. Mm -hmm. So boundaries is again, part of this transparency, right? It's being open with both myself 
and my partner around like what I need, whether that's something that can't happen or something that has to happen in a certain way or whatever these boundaries are, right? And it's really important to be aware of your own because if I'm not aware of what my boundaries are and I can't vocalize them or be conscious of them, how can I expect my partner to know what that is, right? And, you know, I'm sort of a big believer that uh, we're all survivors and we're just doing the best we can in life. And life is just a whole bunch of paper cut traumas with a few blunt force traumas thrown in there. And we're just trying to survive. And if the traumas have had a significant enough impact, we may have developed a flight or, fl flight or fight response to varying experiences that seem similar to whatever that trauma showed us. It's not about apologizing for that. In fact, it's kind of a thank you. My body's trying to protect me. So thanks. But if I am potentially entering into a relationship that could give me a restorative experience, perhaps I can begin to challenge that armor. And what does that mean, right? What does it look like to start having these boundaries that I've set up for myself? Can I begin to let them go? What are, which are flexible? Which are fixed? How can my partner be a part of that journey with me? So some people who maybe, like you said, have had traumas that have impacted them in their relationships now um, have maybe boundaries that aren't helpful for them or maybe have these kind of set ideas of what they should and shouldn't do. You think part of maybe a, a positive relationship growing into a relationship is maybe removing some of those some of those boundaries or some of those kind of maybe black and white thoughts about what they should and shouldn't do? Yeah, boundaries are there to keep us safe, to protect us, and that's great, but they're not always necessary. And especially with the right partner in the right healthy relationship, a lot of those boundaries won't be necessary. I mean, take something far less complicated than the idiosyncrasies of a relationship. Like if I get bit by a dog, I may be fearful of dogs. I don't necessarily need to challenge that. I can continue the rest of my life hating dogs, crossing the street when I see one coming near to me, getting that like fight or flight response of like anxiousness when I see one. Or I can begin to challenge those boundaries, right? Do I need them? They were there for a reason. If I got really bitten badly by a dog, my body is telling me, stay away from that thing that looks like that thing that did that thing to you, right? That's, I mean, survivalism. But if I want to have a puppy or my partner wants to have a puppy or I think it would be fun for our family, I can start to challenge those. That's really simplistic version, but it's the same idea. I have created throughout my life, based on the experiences that I've had, boundaries for myself that I believe keep me safe. And they probably did at one point, but I don't always need them. And if I am able to let some of that armor go, especially through the help of somebody else supporting me in that journey... That can be so restorative and nourishing for the soul, body, mind, and ultimately the relationship. So people who have had difficulties maybe in previous relationships, or like you said, maybe difficulties in, in attachment relationships when they're younger, they might avoid some aspects of, of relationships or, or maybe think that it's not for them or, or that kind of thing. Is that important to address by yourself before you get into a relationship? Or can you, I guess, grow with a relationship? Like a, is it something that needs to be addressed? But I, I, the reason I ask this question is because I hear an awful lot people say, um, oh, I want, my, I want to fix myself first. I want to help myself first before I, you know, be with someone else. Do you think that's important? Do you think it's important to be okay with yourself before you go into a relationship? For example, the kind of past trauma in a relationship, or can you do it with someone? Can you do it together? B both and or. I think, 
you know, ideally if I begin a journey of sort of bringing awareness into my life around me and why I behave in the way I do, why I feel the way I feel, what things trigger me, what things are no skin off my back and just awareness around that, then, you know, enter in a significant other when these things are triggered, I'm able to discuss them separately from them and I'm not placing them or projecting it onto them. So it's very useful. However, sometimes if we avoid these opportunities to have a restorative experience, then the further we get from that, the scarier it feels. So it can feel quite daunting and then we sabotage and all of that stuff. Okay. That's really interesting. Um, so it can be done both ways. I mentioned obviously past relationships and one of the things that was brought up was attachment. Mm. Are there kind of different, well, I know there's different attachment styles and, and some people might not be aware of them. What are some of the main attachment issues that might impact a relationship and, and where do they, where do they lie? Where do they come from? Yeah. So there's four main attachment styles as we know it today. Um, there's secure, which is a positive view of self and a positive view of others. There's insecure or anxious, which is a negative view of myself, but a positive view of others. There's dismissive, which is a negative, a positive view of myself, but negative view of others. And then there's fearful or avoidant, which is negative of both. Typically, these attachments come from our earliest attachments to our caregivers, usually our parents, um, and how they cared for us, right? Was I held enough? Was I fed when I was hungry? Did they come see me when I was crying, etc.? These things have a lot of impact on how we view relationships and the safety within them. So it's not that our attachment styles are completely fixed based off of where we come from, but it can give us some insight into perhaps why we interact the way in which we do with our partners. And a phrase that I love is uh, we tend to function in dysfunction and we all come from family dysfunction. Sorry to say, but it just exists and it's fine. We can move on from it. Um, but it's this idea of we, we learn to function in our own dysfunction. And so if that includes attachment styles, that's absolutely going to have an impact on our romantic relationships because I have maybe learned that maltreatment is what I should accept, that that's okay, that that's even what I deserve. And that's what my worth is. So instead of challenging it, I accept it. I may be even completely aware that the treatment is bad, right? I'm getting cheated on left and right. They don't call me for weeks at a time. But I have it's so ingrained in me that that's the best I'm going to get or that it's at least better than what I had. And so that I should just be happy for and accept. The other side of it is, is if I've gotten comfortable in this dysfunction, if something really healthy and great comes along, I may sabotage it because it feels so uncomfortable. That's really interesting. Um, it brought to mind that with the, you mentioned maltreatment. It brought to mind another question, which I actually didn't include, but I might just ask you briefly. Somebody asked, or actually a couple of people asked, um, why they're attracted to people who, for example, don't treat them right. And, and why do they seem to always fall for the same type? Might that be related to something along these lines that they've learned maybe to, to uh, that this is what their worth is or what they're... Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the beast I know versus the beast I don't. It's far less scary because I know it, right? It's like that is functioning and dysfunction. It's, I mean, related to something a little more simplistic, like I hate my job, but I don't want to go look for another job because what if it's worse? I'm removing the opportunity that it could be way better. But because I know it and I'm comfortable in it, I'll stick 
and and can those issues come from attachment issues yeah absolutely because it's it's if i am if i believe that this is the best i'm going to get i don't have enough of a sense of self a strong enough sense of self-worth that i deserve better and, and how does somebody address those issues is that something that you should do in therapy is it important for example to understand your attachment style is it important to understand what what those things mean yeah, I mean, attachment therapy is certainly an option for people, if especially if there's been like childhood trauma or abuse or neglect. Um, however, I think in general, like as it stands today, however you're interacting in your relationships, if you're seeing patterns, we can start to challenge those patterns. And usually it does come from a sense of insecurity or lack of self-esteem or lack of identity. And so it's, it's sort of speaking to that empowerment piece. And, you know, that would be done more on the individual level than in the couple level. But certainly many of my clients individually who um, struggle within their relationships, self-esteem and identity is a big part of it. You also mentioned about how sometimes you avoid the, for example, the more positive partner, the more positive option, the more positive relationship, because it's scary. Can someone address that by themselves? Can someone, um, I guess, face that fear or embrace that discomfort and, and make that progress by themselves too? Absolutely. It's, it's learning to lean into it. And the reason transparency again is super important here is letting your partner be a part of that journey, right? So a specific example, maybe if I have suffered some sort of sexual abuse in the past, whether it's familial or in past relationships, right? It can feel really scary and almost impossible to feel that kind of a connection with somebody and not fear that it's unsafe and that you need to protect yourself. If I allow my partner to know what I'm kind of struggling with, I can lean into the relationship knowing that I can start to challenge some of these boundaries, some of these protective armor that I've created for myself in my comfort zone at my timeline, right? So if we're talking about like sexual intimacy, taking it one step at a time, my partner checking in, is this okay? And then going back to your safety zone if you need to, because it's not going to go away. You've created that. It's there but maybe you don't need it all the time. That's so, so interesting. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will get a lot of value from this. Um, the next thing I wanted to move on to was codependency. Yeah. Um, so codependency is obviously another question that was asked quite a bit. Could you explain maybe what it looks like for people in, in a relationship and how do you kind of maybe get around that codependency? Yeah. So codependency, um, when we're talking about relationships, is an excessive reliance on other people or usually one single person for approval or a sense of identity. And it can bar us from having a mutually satisfying and healthy relationship. Some of the signs that we see, right, are difficulty making decisions, difficulty identifying feelings, difficulty communicating, usually for fear of losing the person because it's so needed for their sense of self. Uh, valuing approval of others more than themselves, and a lack of trust for yourself and low self-esteem. And in kind of battling codependency, if you you know can relate to some of what I just listed, or if um, you worry that you may be in a codependent relationship, the way we can tackle that is is sort of some conscious awareness around that of just like 
relationships are not the only key to happiness. You know, we've always seen sort of the clear-cut example of work being somebody's only thing, like Steve Jobs. He says he was miserable, right? But he was like the be-all, end-all in his career. But he said familiarly he was miserable. This idea of like we have various environments within which we interact, usually about five. So I need to give weight to all of those five. doesn't mean it's going to be an even 20% every day, but I'm conscious and I'm aware of where I'm putting my energy And if I understand that I'm interacting in these five varying environments, my relationship is one part of that. So I need to nourish the other parts as well to ensure that, God forbid, something were to happen. I were to lose that job. I were to get broken up with. It's not my whole sense of self. So just a reminder of that, creating that kind of mantra for yourself, as well as understanding that emotional intimacy is not in just romantic relationships. Oftentimes, we can receive a lot of our needs emotionally from our friends, from our family members. And then don't underestimate the importance of you being able to be comfortable on your own. We are pack animals as a human. We need to have social interaction. It is necessary. But we also require some alone time. And in the dawn ages of 2020, when everything's technology and I don't have to be silent for one moment before I'm even leaving my work, I have my podcast up and running, there's not really any necessary space for me to be alone. But it's super important. And as we move into this new world of like constantly connected to other things, often digitally, I start to lose this idea of like, maybe I need to get in touch with myself. That's really, really interesting. So codependency essentially is, I know you mentioned some of the signs uh, or, or how to recognize it, but it's a little bit putting all your eggs in one basket. Like your relationship is your sense of self. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. And every move or action or behavior they make determines where you're at emotionally versus my partner can do something and I don't love it, but it doesn't break. It doesn't have to break me down. Right. I'm not defined by them. That's really interesting. Um, we're unfortunately running out of time, but I want to wrap up with giving you, I guess the open floor Mm -hmm. of what kind of advice you'd give to people who are struggling in their relationship. What are the kind of, I know you mentioned transparency, the kind of basics for people to get to where they want to go in their, in their relationships. Okay, so number one, be kind to yourself. Because if you allow space to be kind to yourself, it allows you the space to be more empathetic, compassionate, and understanding of your partner. Um, Removing the ideas of wrong and right, it's different, and that's liberating and exciting. In fact, you know, people, we actually didn't really touch on it, but this idea of like relationships feeling stale, it's because there's this lack of excitement, which inherently we want to get rid of because we don't want our partners to be new. We want them to be comfortable, but then we're losing that fantasy part. So starting to talk about things in a way that you haven't before can actually be extremely exciting. And you start seeing your partner in this totally new light and it can be very attractive for you. So that's another journey that you can go on. Um, and then reevaluating the reasons you're together. And if they still make sense for you and if they still apply, then there's work there and you can get through it. Finally, obviously therapy. Is helpful. I I come from a land where people are in therapy all the time. So I'm a big believer in it, obviously. And then in being kind to yourself, just recognizing that we're all just doing the best we can. And if that's the overriding theme, then probably my partner is doing the best they can too. And it just allows both of us to be a little kinder to ourselves and recognize that change is really hard. And if change is hard, then maybe we can fumble through it together. Yeah, it'll be easier together. That's it.
Nicole, that was incredibly insightful for me personally, and I'm sure for everybody who's who's listening. But I hope so. before we um, finish up, can you let people know where they can find you or um, what you do, and 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 maybe a little bit more about how to contact you? Maybe. Sure. Yeah. So um, I'll plug myself on the Insta. Um, <laughs> since I'm new to Ireland, I have a new professional page here. Um, so it's N as in Nicole Banner B as in Boy A N N E R dot Therapy. And that's on Instagram. And then obviously with Spectrum Health, I work here. I work in the Fitzwilliam building and in Ranala. I do have some small amount of openings potentially in morning, afternoon times. But you can also always um, talk to the administrative team and they can put you on a waiting list and I'll get in contact with you as soon as I can. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I'll make sure that I tag Nicole in my posts when this goes out. And um, Nicole, I just want to thank you so much for your time and your insight. Oh, thank you so much for having me.